Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equality, inclusion and diversity in financial services. On this podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And today I'm joined by Madison Marriage of the Financial Times and Wincy Wong of RBS. Madison Marriage began her career in financial journalism in 2010, joining the Financial Times as a reporter in 2012. Her tenures have included deputy editor of the asset management section, and today her beat covers the world of tax and accounting. In January last year, Madison went undercover at the President's Club Gala Dinner, writing a front-page expose that blew the cover and caused time on decades of distasteful behaviour in the name of fundraising, reporting hostess harassment and unsavoury conduct. Madison, a very warm welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. Drawing on her digital and financial services skills, Wincy Wong runs the Supply Chain Innovation Division at RBS delivering transformation programs right the way across the organisation. She calls herself a digital evangelist with a passion for making innovation relevant to customers and as the co-founder of the RBS Girls Can Code Network is committed to growing more diverse technology workforces. She is a founder member of Tech She Can, pulling together more than 80 UK companies to increase the number of women in technology roles. And having grown up in New York City, Wincy has spent the last 10 years in London. Wincy, welcome to the show. So happy to be here. And as always, at the start of the show, we invite each guest to talk about what they're up to at the moment. So Wincy, let me come to you first of all. What are you up to? Hi. So I have been very, very busy. As you rightly mentioned, I'm one of the founding members of Tech She Can. The Tech She Can charter started with just me and 18 other really awesome women in tech who were sitting around realizing that we were all facing very similar issues in terms of progression, in terms of the ratio of women around us. And what we decided to do is, you know what, we, we were all doing things individually in our companies. It was time for us to come together and actually work cross industry. And we're absolutely delighted that over the last year that we now have over 80 member organizations um, from across all industries. We have Tesco's, we have some of the other banks as well. So this is all about cross collaboration, cross industry. Yes. So there's certainly not in there. We'll, we'll pick up as we go through the show. So thank you, uh, Wincy. Madison, let me turn to you. What are you up to at the moment? So as I have a juggling uh, multiple projects, I'm really bad at concentrating. So um, I tend, my brain darts from topic to topic. Um, so on any given day, probably working on uh, between five and 10 stories simultaneously. Um, quite difficult to say exactly what they are now because I obviously don't want to reveal my stories before they're published. But um, in general, uh, the thing that's kept me busiest over the last 12 months is what's going on with the big four accounting firms. Um, and the whole audit market being in a really febrile state. So big regulatory reviews going on, tons of scandals, um, hefty fines being dished out um, globally. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot to write about there. And I'm sure we'll see those articles come out in, in due course as well. So it's fantastic. But, but let me just return to uh, where I sort of began with your biography, which is um, thinking we're one year on from your expose with the Financial Times about the President's Club. I'm really keen to hear your thoughts around uh, what has changed. And it, one thing that really struck me was the FT seemed incredibly supportive when the article came out. Well, I mean, when you set out, did you imagine it was going to be such a huge story? No, I, th I thought it would be a big story. And um, uh, by which I mean, it would 
probably go on the front page and be really well read according to our normal metrics, but I did not expect it to explode in the way that it did. So within days, it was on the cover of pretty much every other national newspaper um, and also being picked up by newspapers everywhere internationally. So I had colleagues in our international bureaus getting in touch from Italy and Australia and America and Canada and um, everywhere saying, oh my God, have you seen them? You know, we've we've been writing about it here too. Um, so the, the kind of the global impact of it massively exceeded my expectations. And then what you've obviously had a, a lot of broadcast interest as well from that. So I was watching one of your, your clips from, from Newsnight as well. Um, I, I, I suppose as, as we sit here today, what surprised you most then? And what surprises you most now? Oh, it's really hard because uh, I will come back to your question, but um, speaking to people about the event afterwards, about the President Club, President's Club dinner, um, the overwhelming feedback I've had from other people is that something shocked each of them, but it's always something different. So whether it's the uniforms that the hostesses were made to wear or the type of harassment they received or the fact that they were monitored going in and out of toilets, um, or the the things that were up for auction that night. Uh, you know, there was a evening at a strip club alongside naming rights for a, a wing of a children's hospital. Um, everyone you speak to, there's something different that shocked each of them. So I think the night itself shocked me on many different, quite complex levels. Um, I think the thing that shocked me the most is because I've never been at the center of a media storm before personally. Um, and there are elements to that that really surprised me, both how some newspapers um, reacted. Uh, there was one paper that tried to come after me personally in particular. In the end, that didn't happen, but that was really uh, traumatizing. Um, and actually, I think probably a useful learning experience for a journalist to be on the receiving end of that. Um, and then the other thing was the kind of the trolling and the abuse that comes from a certain section of society when you do um, uh, put, uh, yeah, put certain people in the spotlight. There was a fair amount of that and I'd never experienced anything like it before. Um, you know, and I believe that that kind of thing does make you stronger, but it was pretty unpleasant at the time. I can't even begin to imagine, actually. And the and sort of one year on now, uh, I was very interested. I read your sort of article, which you you co-authored, and, and one thing that surprised me was that various people who attended, who who, uh, who were interviewed, um, that you know their kind of reaction. Some it obviously does not represent everybody, but but some were saying yes, they were prostitutes, but they weren't hostesses. Uh, yes, there were hospitality suites and rooms upstairs, but only a small minority moved to them. And then one that really got me was uh, we do want to objectify women, and the girls want to be objectified. And this is one year on from from when that that came out as well. And and I wonder sort of to what degree the world has changed, um, and if so, how. So I think part of the reason why we published that piece and included uh, quite lengthy quotes from that individual and others uh, was to demonstrate the fact that there still are some real dinosaurs out there and that some people's attitudes definitely haven't changed despite the kind of global tidal wave of the Me Too movement. Um, but I think there is a lot to be positive about. Um, I don't want to sound too Pollyanna-ish, but... Um, you know, I think that to an extent, both the President's Club but all the other Me Too scandals that have embroiled uh, companies around the world from, you know, those related to Hollywood to some big financial services companies in the UK, um, they have realized the kind of the reputational risk of having these kind of scandals attached to their names. And um, and I think are both kind of rightly stricter and tougher on employees uh, found to have engaged in improper conduct or illegal conduct. Um, let's not shy away from the fact that much of this stuff is uh, definitely illegal um, and should be prosecuted. So 
Um, yeah, I think if anything, I hope that my reporting, the most important thing that could have come out of it um, is that any man or woman tempted to um, harass, grope, um, behave in a disgusting way with um, whether it's, you know, a waitress, a hostess, a flight attendant, a colleague, whoever might think twice about it. That would be the, the best thing that might have changed. And I, and I hope that maybe it has given people food for thought in that respect. I think it's had a huge impact in organisations thinking about, you know, kind of obviously employee behaviour, reputational risk uh, and damage. But also uh, a lot of our listeners are not only business leaders, but also diversity inclusion specialists. And I wonder if there's anything you'd particularly uh, say to them about what should they pay attention to at the moment? That's a really good question, because something which I find quite frustrating is a lot of major corporates um, have had you know, really admirable policies in place for years um, and say that they've been trying to improve uh, gender diversity and other kinds of diversity for years. And yet the statistics are still so shockingly bad. So, um, you know, I think something really brilliant that's coming in the UK is the gender pay gap reporting. I know it's not perfect and I know companies hate it for um, some fair reasons, but Ultimately, it has shown that um, there's far too few women in senior roles in almost every organization um, that has to supply the data to the government um, in the UK. Uh, and the fact that companies now have to report on it year in, year out means that when journalists like me and elsewhere um, start compiling, not quite league tables, but you know, highlighting the worst offenders, it puts pressure on those companies to change and to do some, yeah, practically do something um, which they haven't done before. And so in a funny way, I found it a bit irritating over the last um, 18 months, two years that companies are saying, you know, we recognize our gender pay gap isn't where we want it to be. And now we're going to do X, Y, Z. And I find that frustrating given that that issue has been there for decades. Um, you know, why, why, why do they have to wait for the government to prompt them and say, yeah, give us your stats before they actually start putting tangible measures in place that might have an impact. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that the things seem to be happening. Um, I guess the thing I would like to say is that if those changes don't seem to be having any discernible impact and, um, you know, the year on year data, it's kind of difficult to tell what's working and what isn't. But in five years time, you know, have a serious reassessment and, um, and exit interviews, I think, are really important. I think not enough companies listen to staff who are leaving. And I think it should almost be mandatory to kind of compile data on that and see if there's a repeated theme. Because, um, yeah, I think especially women when they start having kids, that's, you know, it's well known that that is a big problem and companies struggle with retention there. Um, you know, I've got family members who've been through it themselves, basically kind of pushed out of a job. Uh, within a year of having a kid and the statistics on that are really appalling and there's definitely more co that companies could be doing um, to stop that. And so part of that is thinking about the kind of the entire career life journey from from sort of young uh, students and academics back into schools actually thinking about their journey and their uh, appreciation of uh, their role and contribution in the workplace right the way through to representation on boards of both at gender level and then also ethnic minorities as well, which is something we talk a lot about on the podcast. Uh, Woodsy, I'd like to bring you in here at this point, actually particularly to that point about um, going back into encouraging young talent way, way back into school? Because this, this is a sort of a pipeline question as well, really, in terms of uh, encouraging diversity groups to get involved 
in technology and think about their career futures. And you were talking about Tech She Can and, and the impact that that is having. Uh, talk us through some of the impact. And I'm really keen to get into some of the data around what impact has that, that program had. Sure. So as part of Tech She Can, I lead the Improve Education work stream. We actually have three. First is to improve education. Second is image overhauls for careers in tech. And the third is policy change. So how do we actually change the policy to have lasting impact for what we're trying to do? And as part of the Improve Education work stream, we were really keen um, uh, as a network to actually do something. There's a lot of networks who are really great that sit around and, and talk a lot about issues, but don't really make uh, do things and make impactful change. And that was the difference with this charter. That was something we really wanted to do, to actually change something. So we have... Um, created uh, a lesson, six lesson plans, um, a series of, of six lessons across different areas of tech that we will, that we teach to years six, seven, and eight in the oh, UK. So, so what sort of age is that just for those who? Yes. So ages 10 to 13. We find that that's particularly the, the age where children start to make decisions. So that by the time they get to GCSE level, for example, we saw in a research from, I think, 2016, is in the study that PwC did on uh, girls in tech, only 3% of the girls would select tech as a first choice, as a career. And we wanted to change that earlier on in the funnel. So we came out with these lesson plans. We actually started a pilot with five schools in Coventry, one of which is the eighth most impoverished school in the nation, all the way up to middle class and more affluent schools. We really wanted a spectrum, a range of different students and see how they would respond. Really happy to say that um, before the, at the start of the lesson plans, 45% of the students said they would consider a career in tech, and now 60% of the students would and that's, consider that's it. girls and boys. And that's so both girls and boys, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, and that's an important distinction. So the, although the tech she can charter, is all about changing the ratio for women in tech. We're doing that by creating lesson plans for both boys and girls. And we call those lesson plans Tech We Can. We want it to be a lot more inclusive in terms of how we conduct it, those lessons. Um, however, if you want to look at the stats for female students, we saw that 30, only 30% 30 of the female students said they would consider a career in tech at the very start of the lesson. And by the end of it, and 56%, so almost double the amount would say that they would consider a career in tech. And that was massively um, exciting. We also saw that about 87% of the students um, in total enjoyed the lessons. Out of that, 97% of the male students enjoyed it, whereas 80% of the female students enjoyed it. So we're really enthused and excited. What we really want to do is take these lessons and now pilot with more schools, hopefully, and digitize it, get to a thousand schools. And we're, um, uh, we're in the midst of looking at our tech partners who have joined the Tech She Can Charter to help there's, there's 80 organizations to get behind it and, and, and to roll that out as well. Absolutely. Fantastic. And, and one of the things that I know you're very focused on, um, but also in the industry as a whole about inclusive leadership and thinking about how do you embrace full inclusion in innovation? Let's, let's call it in its broader sense as well. But I'm very, uh, very fascinated by the dynamics of where the investments lies and arguably, um, 
no, the world of VC and venture cap equity, and also you work for a financial institution, mm. very male dominated. And actually, there are skews and arguably biases around how much money goes towards male established and run enterprises versus female as well. Love to love to get your thoughts on that. So there is a lot that's happening in this space. Um, not enough, I think there. Are, um, and you'll have to check this this particular stat. But I, I heard recently that there was a stat that only one percent of VCs in the UK are female, and that is absolutely appalling. There, there's not enough women in, who are going to small businesses because they're not getting the funding that they need. That's something that's a huge focus for us in the bank. One of the things that Elson Rose, who's our CEO of our uh, commercial and private bank, has been charged with by the government is to do a review on women in business and to see what the barriers are for women in business. And this is particularly important in both financial services and, and in tech. Um, and the reason I, I focus on it is because tech is the fastest growing sector is the biggest sector for small businesses in the UK. And if women are not learning about tech and not getting into it and um, not confident in their ability to do that, they're missing an, a huge opportunity, even when they do decide to go into that business. So as a bank, we, we have done a lot of commitments to have more um, women in business specialists who are responsible for helping more women go into small business uh, and to help support them. A really great example is I have a very dear friend of mine, Asma Khan, who's the chef and founder of Darjeeling Express, uh, Indian restaurant in Soho in London. And she is the first British chef to be on Netflix's chef's table. Absolutely incredible. And when I first met her a few years ago, she was just running supper clubs with her team of amazing women. And she, I remember her sitting with me and saying, Wincy, I want to open a restaurant. I really need to go bigger. However, I don't, um, I don't know where to go for funding. I think I'm going to go crowdfunding. I'm going to go do something in crowdfunding. And I said, but really, Asma, why, why wouldn't you go to a bank? Um, and she said, well, isn't a bank full of um, men in suits? And, and they would never lend to someone like me. And I'm very happy to report that we were able to prove her wrong. We were able to lend her the money that she needed to open that restaurant and to create this platform. She has an all-female kitchen, and she's been doing a tremendous amount for other women in the food business. Sounds, sounds, sounds amazing. I mean, our focus really is more on the financial services, but may I just say that everybody in financial services needs to eat. So we Absolutely. Send them, I know, have you been there? Have you seen the restaurant? Have you been I have, there? actually. I took my, um, my best friend there for her 30th birthday. Love that. Love that. No, but it is um uh, one sort of few things I've been sort of thinking about, which is particularly this year, which is a year of change, and and really love to hear both your views on this. Which is when we talk about embracing difference and diversity and inclusion, um, when we're on the rise, so when we're economically doing very well, but of course this is a fascinating year of change, and wonder how um, in at times of economic uncertainty. Perhaps I don't want to be the doomsayer on the podcast. Times of economic uncertainty. How? Do, why, why does diversity and inclusion matter? Madison, let me come to you first of all, your thoughts. I mean, there's been academic uh, research paper after paper and, um, you know, big um, consultancies like McKinsey putting out report after report showing that more diverse teams perform better and you can apply it to the uh, investment industry and how fund management teams perform. You can apply it to um, the boards of high-performing companies. Um, I've also seen research that indicates that uh, 
boards which are all male or basically don't have any diversity, um, those kind of companies are more likely to be involved in scandals. So um, there's plenty and plenty of uh, really solid research that shows um, diverse teams do better. Um, so actually, in theory, in a downturn or when um, companies are struggling, that's a really good time maybe to be thinking about your diversity rather than putting that on the back seat because um, it might help you get yourselves out of a hole. And, and of course, in technology, I mean, diversity really matters. If you're building technology, you have to have diverse minds around it as well as individuals in order to put it through its paces effectively. Otherwise, you end up with biases. And, and um, the, the you know the world you look at, Wincy, which is around the technology as well. I mean, why particularly more than ever before should listeners be going, you've got to make sure this stays at the top of the agenda? Well, as a bank, we've been around for almost 300 years. That is a long time. And the fact that we've been around this long or have survived all these years um, is largely because of our ability to innovate and change and adapt. So when you're in a time of economic uncertainty, you need to make sure that your um, corporation or your bank is nimble enough to be able to adapt to that change. And as you rightly say, Julia, the diversity is critical in that. I've always hired teams that were diverse. Uh, and diversity takes on a lot of different tones. So in innovation, it's extremely important if you're coming up with ideas to have people who are introverts and extroverts, for example, mm -hmm. to have people who have different types of backgrounds, people with maybe more cerebral, psychological, academic backgrounds, as well as people who have maybe more marketing and advertising backgrounds, uh, as well as um, people who are more technical. So you need people of all different backgrounds. It's even better if they come from different cultural backgrounds, different genders, different different points of view. We as a bank have a huge spectrum of customers. We, you know, bank a fifth of the UK. And as part of that, we have customers who are all shapes, sizes, and different types of people. So unless we have people who are creating experiences that are also diverse, we can't build those to be relevant in times of economic uncertainty. It's during these times where it's critical for all large corporations to really cut to the core, to really see what it is they have to create. Well, I think that's a great moment there to just take a pause and to invite in Robert and Cynthia, who are going to offer some research to support today's discussion. In the Institute of Business Ethics 2018 Ethics at Work United Kingdom survey, 33% of the employees who took part in the research have been aware of misconduct at work and have decided not to speak up. The main reasons for this were because they felt they might jeopardise their job, they felt they might alienate themselves from their colleagues, they did not believe that corrective action would be taken, and they felt that it was none of their business. According to the 2015 Morgan Stanley Capital International MSCI Index, public companies with more women on their boards are less likely to be hit by scandals such as bribery, fraud or shareholder battles. The researchers looked at more than 6,500 company boards globally. The research found that the boards with gender diversity above and beyond regulatory mandates or market norms had fewer instances of governance-related scandals. 
So thank you, Cynthia and Robert, and links to the research can be found on our website, www.diversitypodcast.com. Don't forget that's diversity with a C, not with an S. Diversitypodcast.com, where you can find all our episodes and sign up for early notifications of future recordings. Please do follow us on Twitter at DiversityPod. And Diversity Podcast is available on Bright Talk and all good podcast channels. And we love a rating because it all helps promote the show. We want to end on what you're optimistic about. So actually, let's start with that uh, just between us. So what are you optimistic about? I've definitely seen really concrete signs of um, companies that I write about uh, making very serious moves to improve matters, by which I mean they are inviting in external people to provide hands-on training staff about what to do if you're in an uncomfortable situation or if you see a colleague in an uncomfortable situation or would you flag it to anyone? And those kind of questions which... Uh, you might think about and worry solo, you know, without even sharing it with anyone else um, around you. And actually saying it out loud in a training environment, I think, can provide you with some, um, yeah, really good ideas of, about what to do and how to flag it. I think the whole whistleblowing process is incredibly enigmatic um, and it needs to be demystified. So you need to know if I tell my line manager or I tell HR or I tell the head of my department um, that this thing happened to me or it happened to my colleague, you need to know exactly what the next steps will be. So who is that person then going to inform? How many people total are going to know? Will everyone know? So if you don't know those things, then you're 10 times more likely not to report it to anyone just because you're scared. So I think, um, yeah, I, I know, and I plan to write about this, um, some companies that are, are already doing this and introducing this kind of training to people. And I'd kind of urge other companies to um, do the same thing. Um, so, so, Wincy, let me just uh, turn to you then. Uh, what are you optimistic about? I'm really optimistic about um, two things, I think. It, it's something that, that you've brought up um, about consequences. So by having the art, by putting the article that you did out and the, the huge movement that's happened in financial services, there are consequences now for the people. Whereas previously, um, uh, this kind of behavior proliferated because there were none. And I think a lot of corporations and large banks have come out and said, this is no longer acceptable. And what I'm really optimistic about is, is that next generation it is about seeing them get excited about new careers. Uh, when I was entering financial services, financial services was the sexy career. Uh, you know, there were a lot of movies about it, and that's where you were making all the big money, etc. Well, that's no longer the case. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this isn't always where you make the biggest money. You um, and I know, and I know that for the next generation, they're looking at the tech companies, or they want to become entrepreneurs, which is incredible um, in, in order to make it big. And some of them are having a huge amounts of impact in the world. Uh, and what I'm excited about is helping that next generation see the opportunities and, and seeing that light in their eyes as and well. I, and, I, and I think that's a wonderful moment to, to end the show in terms of thinking about um, how do we how do we encourage the next generation to come into the industry, but also how do organisations step up, become accountable, and then also uh, demonstrate that there are consequences to behaviours that are no longer acceptable within this industry. It's been a fascinating conversation. I'd just like to take a moment to thank you both, Madison and Wincy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Robert Pinto-Fernandez for their insights. 
You can find out more about guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com. And that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity Podcast, remember to give us a rating or review. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening. 